Ahead of the Remco Evenepoel consolation race tomorrow, we have the recap of the Vuelta Espana with Benji. I look like I've been dragged backwards through a bush, and maybe I have been. I don't know. Uh, it's We'll go through all the stages, uh, winners and disappointments, what we expect from some of the revelations like Gino Mader, as well as recapping the Women's Serotizit La Vuelta Challenge, which happened the last four stages across the end of the Vuelta Espana. But welcome back. Benji from your no days of rest, straight podding the whole time. So welcome back to the stage. Stage one, the TT or prologue that wasn't called a prologue, Roglic, then Philipson, first sprint stage, then Rain Tarame on the first mountaintop finish. Very unusual for the GC group not to win that. He wins, takes the jersey for two days. Jakobsen, the next sprint stage, Tarame keeps the jersey despite crashing. Philipson, Wins the third sprint stage in the first five stages. Kenny Alesson takes the jersey off Tarame because Tarame crashes the second time. Magnus Court wins on Cuyera ahead of Roglic, but Roglic takes red. Then Stora, the first breakaway stage on stage seven. That's the stage where Groschartner and Haig took time on Balcon d'Alicante. Then Jakobsen wins two, goes two and two against Philipson on stage eight. Then Caruso, the 70-kilometer break on stage nine. Rolich goes into the first rest day in the leader's jersey. I'll pause on the first rest day, Benji. What do you think of the first week? I think one too many sprint stages for me. I think so as well. It's starting off quite mountainous, you know, for a Vuelta every single time. We've got a bit of a mountain in the first few days, and we've got that on stage three, which was fun, but I do feel like it was um, not necessarily lackluster, but it wasn't a very explosive stage. The Picon Blanco climb was not climbed at the ultimate tension, despite us having a few riders that already dropped off the bag, the likes of a Carapaz, and that was one of the main events of the first few days. The fact that Carapaz was not at the top, Haig indeed looking not that perfect at the start either so uh a few indications that certain riders weren't going to do well and some riders that perhaps would make it back to a decent level by the end of la vuelta and be able to set up a decent result but it was a start mainly of uh the rise of intermarché with that tarame victory and uh i think we'll definitely talk about them when we venture into our wins here well, exactly, because stage 20, another breakaway win for Michael Storer on Rincon de la Victoria. Old Christian Eiking takes the red jersey. You'll remember he and Guillaume Martin were marking each other. This is also the stage where Roglic uh, went on that uh, attack for no reason and crashed, could have lost the Vuelta there before the next stage, the stage that was hit, nailed on for him. They caught the break this time, Paul Magnus caught up the road, and they, he won Roglic on Valdepeñas de Jaén. Then the next stage, 12 to Cordoba, was Magnus caught. Was this from the larger reduced group, Benji, where Matthews was there and bike exchange at pace? And then yeah. the Chicone yeah, Bade attack? Yes, yeah. that's the one. Old Christian Iking still in the leader's jersey, by the way, for like seven, eight stages. 13 was the Seneschal, if you don't look back, you are not a leader win with Jakobsen <laughs> losing the, his wheel. So it's actually, I'm, I'm enjoying going through remembering all these funny moments. Stage 14 was Bardet. This is the Jay Vine um, Undertaker gif getting hit by the car, coming back from the dead. And Bardet still one of the mount top finish. Pico Vierkas, Micah on stage 15, 85k solo. Old Christian Iking still in the red jersey. GC not changing at all, by the way, all this time in the second week. And then second rest day. So that second week, Benji, 
Again, yeah, maybe I overrated it a bit. I think maybe because I, I enjoyed some of the subplots, but the headline action, GC action, really was lacking there with Yumbo not particularly interested in taking back red. Yeah, I think so as well. It's the typical uh, second week, to be honest, where you've got the tension going down a bit because people are just expecting more action to come in the third week. And that is visible here as well. It's visible in every single Giro that we've had in the last few years, last year as well, this year as well. And in the Vuelta this year, it was very noticeable too. And that's because despite there being mountains at the end of the last week, it's a few days just before the uh, Lagos Covadonga comes and Alto del Angliru comes. Uh, Angliru, I mean, Camoniteru, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> so after the second rest day, we have another sprint stage. It's a little bit rollier though, but that was won by Jakobsen. And then it was the Covadonga stage 17. We got into the good stages. Roglic won that stage. This was the Bernal 60-kilometer raid with Roglic. I want to t- come back to this stage in a second, Benji. Roglic takes the leader's jersey. He'll never lose it. Stage 18 up to Gamonoteru, uh, won by Lopez. The Queen stage, no one could go with him, but he can't take back enough time. Stage 19, Court wins from the very small group in the break with DSM and Bike Exchange chasing all day. Stage 20, my best Grand Tour stage of the year, Clément Champoussin wins, but absolute carnage behind with Lopez abandoning after Bahrain mounted a coup. Then stage 21, the TT uh, went exactly as we expected, Rolich winning and, uh, yeah, all staying. No GC changes except for Coos losing a few spots in the top 10. Rolich taking out the Vuelta Espana. Uh, Gino made of the young jersey, Fabio Jakobsen, Green, Stora KOM and Bahrain D-Teams classification. Do you know who won most aggressive? It was Court. I don't know. I have no clue, actually. Probably a Spanish rider. Probably Biscaro. <laughs> He's a Zorada. <laughs> a Mesqueta. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or yet, no, Yetzibol, maybe, because on Burgos. We'll give our combat- combativity. Well, who's yours? Probably Korg, right? Uh, yeah, maybe it's Korg. Has to be. Yeah. Uh, if it's not Korg, it's Thor, So, uh, But he's got a jersey already, so let's give it to Korg. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I want to... Looking at the GC gaps, because there's something that's been mentioned in the comments, and we even mentioned it, you know, but with Bernal's TT, well, first of all, I didn't expect Adam Yates, Egan Bernal, to do such a good TT and beat Adam Yates. I had Adam Yates ahead of Bernal on the TT. Now, maybe that's because Yates had to go out too hard too early. But people are saying, oh, well, if Bernal had been in the split, he would have come third. And I'm like, that's not really how in your strategy on stage 20 worked. Their strategy was to counter, counter, counter until they got one of the two into a split that was, you know, good for them and then the other sits back. That's just – and one was having to be Bernal and yes, was strong at that moment. But going back to the stage with Roglic, Benji, now we're talking pure 2020 hindsight. Did Bernal lose his podium shot there where he went on the 60-kilometer raid and invested too much in the valley and got caught? Uh, it's – you could see it as that, but I also see it as – an attack that tried to get him on the podium, but yeah, it has influence on his energy for the next couple of days, sure. But I still feel like on the last day, he would not have had the energy to follow the attacks of, well, mainly Yates there. So if Bernal would have made that attack, I don't think we'd have a situation where Lopez was off the back, for example. So there's a bit of a a problem there where I don't think it would have necessarily had the split on stage 20 that we currently had. So that change would not have affected stage 20 
in the way that perhaps we expect based on what we saw, if that makes any sense. I think we see with Ineos here, we'll talk about them now. A, a disappointing Vuelta for the, you know, for them, their expectations are higher than other teams. They have the highest budget in, in cycling. Fourth and sixth on GC, no jerseys, no stage wins. I think what we're seeing here, Benji, is Ineos have actually accumulated a lot of GC contenders with Thomas and Port aging out who actually aren't that good at time trial. And when you pair two attacking guys who aren't good at time trial, it's not always the best combination. For Haig and Maida, when they shot that, their long shot, yeah, that worked, but also Maida could pull the flat really hard and he was also a domestique for Haig, let's be real. Would it have been different, Benji, if you have Bernal as the aggressor and a Dumoulin, Pete Thomas-style rider behind? I think that's the perfect combination. We saw it in 2019 Tour de France with Thomas and Bernal. It worked well. Do you think we'll see Yates and Bernal paired together in a Grand Tour next year? Well, it, it's very possible that they are still paired together in a Grand Tour, but I see the main issue not necessarily being that, well, one of the main issues is that they can't time trial as good as a Roglic or a Pogacar, but the other problem is that they also can't climb as good as a Roglic and a Pogacar. So we can blame the time trial we want, but in the end, they're just not as good at the moment. And I haven't seen a Bernal on the level that Roglic is and that Pogacar is really at all. Like, we can talk about the Giro, but the level at the Giro, in my eyes performance-wise, is lower than when we see a Roglic at peak and a Pogacar at peak. And it's going to be very difficult for Ineos to put either of their riders on that level unless it's with some major tactical move. But it's very hard to beat teams that are on paper just as good as you these days in Grand Tours because, let's be honest, Ineos' team has been good in the Giro and so forth. But in the Tour de France and the Vuelta, the team crumbled and it's not only the leaders that aren't good enough to beat the leaders of other teams. It's also the team that isn't good enough to help those leaders help beat the, com- uh, the competition. So I think their main issue just isn't that they don't have a, a Slovenian wonder kid at their top at the moment. And they need to find a GC leader that is capable of winning against Pogacar and Roglic. And that's very much not easy to uh, to figure out because I think... Looking at this Fuelta, even if Roglic has half the team of of the one he had right here, I still think that he would likely have won this race. And perhaps the crashes of the other teams do have a consequence in that. But hey, what do you think about that? I think, yeah, the question marks about Roglic for me are still the same. In Mm -hmm. that good team, bad team, whatever, his level, as Benji said, is so much better than, say, a Ro- uh, Bernal, in my view. Like, you look at Bernal stage six when he was slapping it on the San Giacomo Hill mountaintop finish. Remco put up his power data. It's 5.6 watts per kilo for 36 minutes. That's it's not that high on a mountaintop finish like that, honestly. And that, that was still having a pretty big selection amongst the GC guys. Welter, if you weren't able to... Yeah, I think Bernal did... Uh, Oh, a separate topic, but yeah, Roglic, I just, the same question marks are here. This welter changes nothing in terms of my perception of Roglic, what his problems, weaknesses, strengths are for the Tour de France next yeah. year. Like you can say no risk, no glory, all you want, catchphrase, love it. Yes, I'm boring. Yes, I'm probably a curmudgeon, but the stage, 20, stage 10 attack is not smart. It is not, that's the only way he loses this welter is doing something like that 
and crashing and he falls a little bit the wrong way on that crash, he breaks his collarbone, Enric Mas or someone else wins this World Tour Espana. When Roglic, and because we were saying at the time, it's like he's not 20 seconds ahead. He's two and a half minutes ahead because of the TT. Like you have to, just because the TT's at the end, like you have to factor in his expected gain in the TT. That's why it makes it so risky. And if he does those sort of things against Pogaccia, you, you, you can't make mistakes like that against Pogaccia and survive. So, yeah, has your opinion of Roglic changed, Benji? Are you like, now he can win the Tour de France or it's kind of all the same? No, I still think that La Vuelta for me, in comparison to the Giro and the Tour, you've got riders that go to the Vuelta that either wrote the Giro or felt their goals in the Tour de France. It's a bit of a consolation prize for the people who did not win the Tour de France. Or if a madman who won the Tour de France goes to it, it's to get the double. But that hasn't happened in a while. So uh, I um, expect that to happen in the coming years where Pogacar tries that at least once. But for now, that hasn't happened. So uh, when it comes to Roglic, he beat the rise that he should have beaten. He was favored before the race. And the only thing that could keep him from winning this race was either crashing a gigantic puncture that brought him into a horrible position or something like Formigal or Paris-Nice stage, stage eight, stage seven, whatever uh, amount of stages Paris-Nice has these days. Something chaotic that puts him out of GC contention and that did not happen this Vuelta. So he was able to sustain that because he's the best climber and the best time trialist on the start line here. And it's and as simple as that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the best sprinter according to his last interview. <laughs> yeah. So exactly, um, but speaking about Egan Bernal, Benji, the state here's a statement: this doesn't count as Egan Bernal against Roglic head to head at their peak because Egan Bernal had a affected preparation. So you can't say that Roglic is better than Egan Bernal. Well, I've never seen Egan Bernal ride climbs at the level that Roglic does at the peak. So if Roglic and Bernal are at a Grand Tour at their peak, then Roglic wins unless something happens to Roglic. Or something tactical makes Bernal able to win that race. But we've seen so far not that much tactical stuff coming from Ineos that could overtake the race, really. They tried on Covadonga, but what they did there was for the podium, not for the victory. So you haven't seen a situation where they made such a tactic go for the victory, unless from back in the day in that Giro 2018 that was big tactics. That's like, diff- that's it's different though. Like yeah, it's, it's, so, different. it's so hard for Bernal. Let's explain why it's different. It's so hard for Bernal to make that succeed because Froome is 10 kilos heavier than Bernal. He's a good time trialist. He took time on the pedaling descents. I think, I'm not sure, I can't remember if there was more valley. If Bernal drops Roglic, Bernal did, this is why I think the statement that Bernal wasn't at his peak, like he did some of his best ever numbers when he had Roglic, I think, under that, a little bit of pressure on that sec, the last climb where he attacked, 6.5 for like 20 minutes or something. If he goes solo, they get to the valley. It's for Jumbo Visma and maybe Roglic relaying against Bernal in the valley. He's got no shot. He's like, fucked. Yeah, it would have been worse So if it had sort of succeeded completely. So that's made it so hard for Bernal and that's the limitations, I guess, of not being a... A huge guy. That stage does have like huge consequences for the race, though, despite it not being for Bernal. Bernal basically, with that attack, closes off the GC lead battle yeah. because this Vuelta in its total. This brings me to a bit of a discussion when it comes to my favorite stage. Like you said earlier, stage 20 was your favorite stage of this Grand Tour and this year. I agree, but 
there's one thing lacking in that stage, and that's a battle for the first place in GC. Exactly. We have a battle for the podium. And the reason that we don't have a battle for the victory is because the Kovodonga stage, where Bernal basically makes that move and Roglic gets not really a free ride because he had to put a lot of energy in to get that, but he gets uh, an assist to locking the GC victory for him. And that stage basically locked that victory for me and made the tensions of that a tiny bit lower on stage 20, but it's still the best stage of uh, of the season for me because we had tactical stuff and everybody knows we like some tactical stuff on here. So I think... This, to round out the Ineos discussion, the way this Vuelta played out is why I was so surprised they didn't go hard after Almeida and they seem to be really missing the Dumoulin, Gray, Thomas style GC contender yeah. at the moment uh, with Thomas maybe re-signing, maybe not. I'm not sure. But the next man who maybe overperformed, Gino Maida, can Gino Maida podium a Grand Tour in 2022, Benji? And which one would he be best for? I think probably the Giro. I think 2022 might be uh, might be difficult because of the team that he is in. He's in a team with Mikalanda. You can say all you want about Mikalanda this year. He crashed in the Giro when he was showing extremely good form and he was worthless in week, well, basically everything past day two in La Vuelta. But he's still going to be one of the big names at Bahrain next season. So they're going to look at Landa before they look at Gino Mater for a GC lead and a Grand Tour. And I'm afraid that's going to cause Mater unless, again, Landa crashes out or has a bad week at the start. Sure, I do think that they're going to keep him in mind as a co-leader in those races, which would be excellent because that is the way that Caruso was able to podium the Giro. He was staying in the GC despite Landa still being there in the first few days. Sure, he couldn't have lost too much time in the first few days anyway, but I think that's a big, uh, a big influence in that. And we're talking about bad preparation for Bernal, but didn't Mater crash out of the Giro as well? Or am I misremembering that? I can't remember. No, I think he was... No, he did. He DNF'd after, yeah, you're right, after stage 12 on Banyo de Romagna. Yeah, well. And then he did Tour de Suisse. He mustn't have been bad because he did Tour de Suisse about three weeks afterwards. True. And he won that. Mike Woods let him out in the cobbles. That was a great stage. Yes. Um, Anyway, I I really rate Gino Mater. I think... He's, yeah, he was just so consistent in the third week. And you say, who was the most consistent domestique in the third week? It's, for me, clearly Gino Maida. Every time Haig was getting dropped on 17 and 18, Maida would bring him back. And that was invaluable. And it was kind of like the Sepkus of, all, uh, you know, 2019, 2020 breakout, it reminds me. Now, his TT, I think it can improve. It's not disastrous, but he probably hasn't done too much work on it. He's still young. Remember, he signed, he was on NTT last year. And then probably looking around for a contract, now go on a Bahrain. So, you know, it's not like this guy's like, oh, let me just go and spend money on a wind tunnel while he's looking to just get a World Tour contract last uh, last Christmas. Yeah, but in hindsight, like, Gino Mater had talent last year. It's kind of surprising that he had to struggle that much to get that level of a contract. Same, true, O'Connor, you're right. But uh, we're talking about Mater as a domestique. We're going back a bit to Ineos for one second here. Sivakov as a domestique, do you think that his GC hopes for the future are over and that he's going to fall into a GC role in the coming years based on the fact that this year GC was not the case for him at all? Sivakov, I think, is the one bright spot from this Vuelta for the for Ineos. Actually, him and you know, Peacock probably didn't have the Vuelta he wanted or Ineos wanted of him, but 
he actually did some pretty good pulls to set things up in particularly on stage 20. But Sivakov was very good, I thought, and a consistent domestique. He came third on the Balcon de Alicante stage when Stora was just too good. My view, Benji, is Sivakov doesn't have a good TT. I think his natural weight is above the weight he needs to be at to be doing 6.3 consistently for 20 on mountaintop finishes, 6.4, whatever, you know, on the uni, on the single mountaintop stages, they do crazy loss per kilo when it's been easy beforehand. I think, I don't know, I just always remember his Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race, which is obviously an outrageous thing to say, but he's off-season, he's probably at his natural weight a bit bigger, and this guy was shredding it on the flat. On these rolly parkour, he was putting a lot of people into difficulty. Um, and, yeah, I just think... Unless he can grow two centimeters and, and improve the TT if he gets to 190. I don't know. What would you do with him? Because I still think he's so good and versatile. I just think he's almost putting a. I'm, I'm probably, it's a bit early. He's 24 saying he can never do GC. But I think one week GC he can be good at still. Yeah, the weird thing about him is that we were watching, was it Tour de Land last year or Dauphine, where he was Flying. arguably better than Bernal on some of the climbing stages. I think mainly on a. On the Dauphiné, but I can't remember completely. But uh, one Root of those stages, he Root, was definitely Root doing great. Oh, yeah, certainly. And uh, just in general, the fact that this year his GC battles has, have been so much lower, despite the potential of that being so high, it's, it's just a bit odd. And I hope that he can find what he personally wants to uh, achieve because I still believe that he's got gc goals and at his age he can definitely still grow in that but right now as you know mater has proven more than him and uh i think he's a year younger but i could be wrong in that or is he also 24 these days you know mater he is also <laughs> 24 these days okay <laughs> they're close together but um i kind of tried to compare both of those because i feel like they've been around for the same amount of time in a professional uh world tour cycling these days so um yeah, I um I don't know what to expect from Sivakov. I just feel like he's gone down in my vision when it comes to his future in GC, to be honest. But I um well, that was Ineos' plan, right? It was yeah. Lawrence Lawrence Sivakov would be taking over as regular podium contenders for um, for GC for Grand Tours, or at least be super domestiques. Now, I think I I am very pleased like pleased to see Sivakov's performance at the Vuelta. I think they should just. Yeah, don't put any pressure on him to be a GC guy, see what he wants to do, see what actually works for him, where he's actually putting out the best power and comfortable and consistent um, and just play it by. Still young, 24. But winners and disappointments for the Vuelta, Benji. Winners, obviously, EF, I think, with Court. Intermarche are the biggest winner relative to expectations, having one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine days in the leader's jersey would have been 10 without Tarami crashing. And a stage win. Uh, so I think Intermarche are the biggest winners relative to expectations. I think so as well. They are certainly the ones that achieved more than what they are. Everybody thought they could. And it started off with that Tarame victory, like we mentioned earlier. And uh, it kept on going from that point onwards. Sure, we don't have Iking winning that stage, but days in red for a team like that is important. And I think it's a potential step up. But I also don't know, based on their transfers, what their goals are as a team for next season, for example, because they have the Kristoff coming in and so forth. So 
that is something that could add results. But when it comes to a GC rider in their team, do you see someone that could potentially go for a top five at GC? I currently don't really, to be honest. No, a top five would be difficult because then TT comes into it. Yeah, I forgot they would have Nankies uh, if if he hadn't crashed out. I think, yeah, I think they're... I don't know. I'd re-sign Menkes and just sort of go again and then go stage hunting again, to be honest with yeah. you, what I would try to do if I was them. Otherwise, Movistar, I think, had a really good welter. <laughs> like, even with the Lopez thing, I think they had a good welter. I, I wish, you know, they they only spoke about the positive stuff. Say, if I was them, I'd be like, not talking about the Lopez thing anymore. It's between us and him. Yeah. Let's talk about our welter. We won the Queen stage, our only grand tour stage of the year. We had a guy on the podium second. He was best of the non-Rogliches. That's a really good result. We beat Ineos at the Vuelta. You know, we had two guys up there all race with no teammates. Great performance from us. That's the narrative I do. I still think, Benji, it's a win for Movistar. Certainly. And uh, it's mainly a win because of that podium for Mars, but we cannot forget about the victory of Lopez either, uh, despite the drama that happened afterwards. It's like, with this drama, it seems like people are forgetting what Lopez did for this team. He's literally the most winning rider on this team this entire year. He's got the most victories of all riders on their team. So he's quite important for the team to get results, it seems. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, because you'll actually attack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's the kind of rider that might not always be on the second or third spot in GC. He was for a long time in this Vuelta, though. But that offers him opportunities when he's 12th or 5th or 16th in GC go for an attack for from a group where the elite riders are looking at each other a bit and take that victory at the end of the stage because it's happened quite a few times in his life and um that's very valuable and i'd argue that he uh just had a bit of bad luck and one unwise decision and that led to his podium falling away but that does not take away all the performances of the last three weeks that were good performances their tactics in one week one and week two there were a few things where you're like oh mars is chasing lopez for like uh, it's no, lopez was chasing mars but it it's not that important if in the end you're second and third at the end of the stage and that only uh, has two or three seconds consequence so i'd argue that their tactics in week one and two are great and in week three were a tiny bit worse perhaps but in the end, I'd argue that it's just that one moment that fucked it for Lopez and they should be very happy with what Mars did here and they should try and focus on the positives that came out of this Vuelta because uh, they haven't won uh, that much in Grand Tours this year. I think Lopez was their only Grand Tour stage. Correct. They only have three World Tour victories and the others were at Romandy and uh, Valverde at the Dauphiné. So now on to disappointments, which we have to say, because there was not the spoils evenly shared around in this Vuelta Espana. I think Bora Hansgrohe sent, you know, you'd think Shark would have done well, but before his crash, he still wasn't looking good. Bora Hansgrohe, I honestly forgot they were here. Quebeca, um, it's hard to criticize him too much, but then you look at Nizzolo did the Giro and then didn't do the Tour of the Vuelta and he's their best rider. It just seems to be a bad allocation of resources there. So that's my criticism UAE, I think Trentin personally will be disappointed. They did work for him, but otherwise the team actually did quite well, I think, with Micah and Gibbons looking good and then Dela Cruz. Bike exchange and uh, worked a lot on the wrong stages. We said it over and over again, wrong stages to work for Matthews. And then when it came to the right ones, they were probably 
they were quite yeah. tired. Trek Segafredo, again, Ciccone went for GC and then crashed out, didn't he? And then they didn't really feature in, in breaks except for Simmons. So You know who I find the biggest losers at this race? FDJ. And they were already the biggest losers going into this race. Israel's startup nation when it comes to their team selection. They've done basically nothing this entire race, and it's because they were so odd in choosing uh, not to send Martin and Woods to the Vuelta. And it basically fucked over their plans for the Vuelta to do anything. Dan Martin had, I think, 58, 57 race days by the end of the Tour de France. Like, they sent him to a Giro d'Italia where, okay, he won the stage, but the man is better in hot weather doesn't seem to like wet descents, which, again, not a criticism. It's actually a pretty normal thing to not like. And they don't send him to the Vuelta where he came – where did he come last year? Like fourth? He came yeah. fourth last year, won a stage with like multiple – like seven, eight top tens in stages. I think he would have done well at this Vuelta again with the sort of finishes we had. Valde yeah. Pena's to high end. If, if Enric Mas is there with Roglic, Dan Martin I think would have been there too. So I think – Sending him and Woods. The problem is, okay, maybe send him to the tour. Well, I don't know what he did at the tour. He seemed to be out of form and then he came good on Luz Den, but then it's like didn't go on the break. They sent Woods there as well. They have to send, I think what Benji was getting at, they had to send one of Woods or Martin to this race to give them puncher. And there's punchy stages here as well. Imagine on Cullera, Benji, can you imagine Dan Martin or Mike Woods attacking out of the Roglic group and catching court? Because I can. Yeah. Like, I agree. And I don't get it when you see this parkour from so many months beforehand and you choose to send both Woods and Martin to the bloody the tour. tour. Of Britain. Well, tour, tour of Britain as well. <laughs> but uh, sure, Dan Martin is retiring at the end of the season. That is a sad thing where he's getting out of cycling, but he could have ended this on a high note, but he decided to finish in the Tour of Britain perhaps because it's closer to his home. He's doing Lombardia. Okay, nah, then I don't fucking know what he's doing. <laughs> he's good at Lombardia, but yeah, if he doesn't yeah, like... Yeah, but like, come sense, on. Then... He could have done shit at the Vuelta, and I don't know why he's not there, and I can't get over that, because that is such a, a planning mistake for a rider in my eyes. It's the same as not sending Colbrelli to a Vuelta his entire career so far. While, um, sure, he went for the Autumn Classics in the, in, in Italy, but... I would have preferred him see a win the win a leader. Well, a green jersey was it green already in the past? I think it was as well. I'm not sure um, in the world as well. So Ben Herman's also one of their best punchers, and he doesn't like want to do grand tours. I would have said Ben, just go until the first rest day at the Vuelta. You probably still pick up a stage, like <laughs> and go home. Then he would have been he would have been good. So yeah, that was yeah. our biggest problem with Israel. What about FTJ though? They had they they completely lost confidence in Demarc Barnieri left. It's it's not looking good for them at the moment. With even the Demar train, it, it, the, the tension seems even worse now. Yeah, and we had him last year basically cleaning up sprints in the Giro and performing really well in the likes of a Tour de Wallonie and so forth. Arguably the best Demar of his career was last year. Sure, it was not against the top competition, but it's still a very notable sprint difference compared to this year. And it's also a big difference when it comes to the train. It doesn't seem to work that well together. The oil of the uh, machine of the train doesn't seem to work that perfectly this year. And it seems... Is there a reason to that? Like, is there something that we notice in sprints that's different from last year that does not allow a train like the one of Groupama coming forth? I don't know. I can't think of something. 
What train were they competing against in the Giro last year? Was there well, one? Like, who who was he competing against? Sagan doesn't have a train. No. I think was Quebec there with NTT was there with no they weren't there with Nitsolo. Shimolai had no helpers at all. Or was it this year? That Quick, was this year. Quickstep had no. That Quickstep had a climbing team. I. Maybe I'm probably mis- maybe I'm misremembering, but there wasn't a train. He was competing against Consoni and Viviani, yeah. like in terms of positioning. So when it comes down to like more sprint competition here against Koenig with a full train for Jakobsen and Alperson for uh, Jasper Philipson, oh they were there as well, I believe. Oh no, they were at the world. Um, yeah, there's, it just didn't look as good. So maybe it's train, maybe it's Demar. I'm not sure, uh, but yeah, definitely. Definitely a season to forget for, I think, DeMar and FDJ and the world to forget. Why do you think, where's Godu, Benji? Where's David Godu? Not in uh, the Vuelta, it seems. But um, he wrote the Tour de France. So I think that's partially the reason that he's not going to the Vuelta just after it. But then again, someone like him could do two Grand Tours these days. Uh, what is his plan for the coming part of the season? Focusing on Lombardia, most likely, it seems. So perhaps those are his goals and he didn't want to... Uh, Throw away the chance at Lombardia with the Vuelta, but I don't he know. He would have beaten Stora on Balconda Alicante, I reckon. That's my view. They, there's some stages that for Davigudu at the Vuelta, he won two last year that really, really suit him. So when riders win Grand Tour stages at a race, maybe it means they're pretty good at that race, or maybe it's random. But anyway, last, <laughs> what was the uh, any defining things that you'll remember from this Welter Espana Benji or things that you think will have a big influence next year. My big influence for next year is I think this now, just Jack Hay getting on the podium instead of coming fourth, just that change in place means that he will almost certainly be given probably Tour de France leadership, but one would hope uh, next year for barring victorious parkour dependent. That's an understandable take based on the, the stuff we've seen here. But if fourth, think, maybe not. Yeah. Fourth, maybe they're like, oh, you know, fourth, not so good. Yeah, true. Would they uh, dare to uh, have Caruso as leadership at the Tour de France? Nah, he, nah he, he's nah. going to go to the Giro. Like, it's Caruso. Yeah. But uh, I've got a similar note, but on a different rider. I think that this confirms that Jakobsen is a sprinter for the Koenig next season at the Tour de France if we don't have crashes, because I do not see Cavendish being worth more in that race than Jakobsen considering Jakobsen is much younger, is potentially the future of the team when it comes to sprinting, despite sprinters on the Koenig not going much longer than two, three years usually at their peak. And um, I don't know, would they re-sign Cavendish? Does this influence that? Cavendish, both Cavendish and Lefebvre are saying, it is not up to me. So I don't know, I don't know who it's up to. Am I in charge of re-signing him? <laughs> <laughs> it's, in there, but it's not up to me. It's like, well... One of you, it is, because Cavendish, <laughs> you're asking for this much and Lefebvre is asking for a, a packet of peanuts. So it's up to both of you to meet somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah, Jakobsen's better, straight up. Jakobsen's better. If you give him, we saw him, by the way, that they are determined, Benji, to make Bert van Leeuwenhoek and Morkov 2.0. Maybe it'll happen. <laughs> Jakobsen was Likely winning not. in spite of his train, uh, yep. this welter. Give him the full train. Oh, there'll be more sound effects next year, I'm sure, when he wins. But 
And that was our Vuelta España full recap. We enjoyed watching it, particularly the third week. As always, thanks to Lacole for the support during the Vuelta España and throughout the year. If you want to use our discount code, the last couple of days it's active for the Vuelta España. LR Vuelta 2-0 for 20% off all items at Lacole. We're changing seasons into autumn now, allegedly in Europe and going into summer in Australia. So make sure you can check out some Lacole kit at the link below www.lacole.cc for performance cycling apparel. Now stay with us if you're on podcast players for the Ceratis Love Welter Challenge recap, which had, I think, it was pretty surprising. They gave Marlon Rousseau, as we said, so much time up the road on stage one. And then there's an interview straight afterwards, Benji. It's a four-day stage race. It's not that mountainous. Interview straight afterwards with Van Vloet, and he was like, I like riding aggressive, so I didn't really want to defend the jersey anyway. And to be honest, I'll just go and, um, you know, I can take it back another time and, and I'll just be aggressive and attack. And so the next day we were like, okay, Van Vloen will take some time on Royster in the TT, the stage two uphill TT, but she won't be taking two minutes back. And she only took 20 seconds. Great TT from Rosa, who, interestingly, she was in the uh, aero position a lot more. There's a 20... This is what it's crazy, Benny. 22k an hour average, this TT, and they both did it on TT bikes, Van Vleuten and Royce, but Van Vleuten was never in the aero position. Yeah, kind of surprising, but in the end, I think what showed me the most on this stage is the fact that I wouldn't even talk about Van Vleuten and Royce, or just the fact that Van der Breggen was so disappointing on this parkour because her form just isn't there, and it seems like she's winding down towards her retirement this year. Yeah. And uh, based on the stuff I've read so far, this is her last race in SD Works Colors. And then she's got, I think she's skipping European champs and doing world championships. But yes. there could still come a, an SD Works race on her calendar because that was not 100% known yet. But uh, yeah, it's it's weird seeing that trickle away and not having her next season. Ah, I'm starting to feel uh withdrawal symptoms already <laughs> you know what's also weird is uh marta cavalli coming third i, I always thought of her as a sp- yeah. as like a a sprinter and this is a long 20 minutes this is a 20 minute effort 20 minute climb and she comes third here ahead of yeah nivia doma and ruyakas and mulman i so, recall her um getting fifth i think in the giro rosa let me check here yeah fifth in giro rosa time trial uh, as well in a in also a mountainous time trial but obviously two minutes behind van der breggen on that day so not as good as a performance as we have now but i do feel like this could put her in a contention of these kind of races when we think about next season giro rosa once again or that new battle of the north thing that we're gonna have in norway true um those kind of races if they have a time trial or a mountainous time trial, i think the mountainous aspect is i think what makes her good at that time trial because I recall her being a slightly bit worse when it comes to completely flat time trials, but I also don't remember her doing one this season personally. Yeah, she did not. So um, I guess I can't really look at that. But um, yeah, it's, it's just notable. I do remember her doing decent last year in this race as well in the time trial. So, But indeed, a very strong performance. And I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of crazy. Cavalli. Yeah, I know. So, uh, I'd like to see what she can do next year. Stay going to stage three. Rosa still had a minute forty on Van Vleuten, and the next stage wasn't a mountaintop finish. This was no Tour of Norway 
mountain top finish they had, which like Mandalorian destroyed. 109Ks, yes, there's a 5K, 5% climb at the start, and then a 15K, 4% climb, but Royce TT, good engine, no guarantee you can take time there. And then it's like a stepped descent all the way to the finish with some flatter ridge lines, etc. Unfortunately, the coverage started when the race-winning move had already been made, which was a shame, always a shame that that happens. But anyway, Van Vleuten went solo and no one could chase her. She like It was like the patented Yorkshire Harrogate World Championships move. She gained like three minutes. It was all broken apart behind her. Lippert actually a good performance. She Lippert was quite good at this uh, four-day race. She came second, two minutes and 50 behind Van Vleuten with a group with Nivea Doma. They dropped longer Borghini. Catalanca uh, Vas, actually, the Hungarian on SD Works, came sixth at 3.01, and Royce was at 3.03. So GC flipped on its head. Now, now Van Vleuten a minute forty, a minute 34 ahead of Royce, and Longobor Guinea moved up into seventh, up 10 places. Xavi was actually in uh, in third, the Canyon Shram, who's having a really good season. But I think it's a shame, Benji, that... Um, I don't know. If we, we don't really know what happened, whether it's a tactical thing, but I guess it's a shame that from our perspective, Van Vleuten did it, made, sort of made a tactical mistake losing that much time to Royster on stage one, like we thought, and then it's like, well, she'll just it's not a tactical mistake because she'll just take it all back on stage three. Yeah, it's it's true, but I think that this brings us to talking about the entertainment level of races, and while this is a major thing to do put three minutes in the entire competition on a stage like this it's fucking boring to watch because the second that their broadcast is on she's already got two minutes 20 and you know that she's not going to get caught because it's von vleuten that is having two minutes 20 on a group of five riders at that point so it's not uh that entertaining to watch which is just a bit sad and that trickles it down into something that perhaps we should talk about as well on a, a separate stage race uh parkour design podcast at the end of the season in the off season because i do want to have a podcast for that and i'll veto it myself but uh <laughs> just in this it feels like perhaps the parkour design is mattering a lot when it comes to this and offering opportunities for von vleuten to be able to attack in the first 100 kilometers while the broadcast is not on it's just not a great thing to have parkour wise and also i think this sort of stage is what scares off when we say why aren't there so many why aren't there 30 minute climbs in women's racing every race and maybe organizers see this sort of result and then they're like we don't want to have the race decided 60 70 k's from the finish um which like mike you know people say well rafael Maika and caruso went on long attacks but you know unfortunately the what's the state of cycling at the moment the vuelta gets full coverage that being said this Dauphiné stage is Benji. Dauphiné stage eight is not just a problem for women's cycling Dauphiné stage eight usually the best stage of the year Remember, like they don't have coverage when it's kicking off on the earlier climbs either. So it's also just a cycling problem. But stage four, Van Vleuten pretty much had GC wrapped up. She put a teammate, Leah Thomas, in the break actually, uh, who was looking really good. She then broke away, Fuga de Fuga, from that breakaway on a rolly uh, 107k parkour, which had an uphill grind in like the last 600, 500 minutes to Santiago de Compostela to a little nice little kicker at the end. And she got caught. The camera work didn't show it. I think Longa Borghini attacked out of the peloton behind. Correct. She must have because she, but we didn't see her move. She's yep. followed on the other side of the road by Kopecky. Kopecky gets in her draft 
and Longaborghini basically leads out Kopecky on this finish who smokes her at the end, winning ahead of Longaborghini. They gap Anna Henderson, still a good result from her in third. And as I said, I keep mentioning her name, Kata Vas Onesti works the Hungarian. She's like 19, fourth, good result. Then Silvia Zanardi, Elisa Balsamo, sixth, and Nevidoma Lipit Makai, and Rihanna Marcus. So Van Vloyen taking GC, obviously. But Kopecky, I actually didn't think she could punch like this, Benji. I actually do, because <laughs> I think that we've seen quite a few races this year, like the Strada Bianca, where she was climbing really well True, until she, she had that head. puncture, then RVV until she had that puncture. <laughs> it's kind of sad <laughs> if you think about all of it. Um, and it kind of makes me think about the possibilities of, uh, did she ever ride Brabant Sapel before? I don't actually know, but I feel like that should be in her capabilities based on what we've seen before. She didn't do it this year. She's had quite a long career though. So last year, fourth of it in it. So, uh, she definitely has the capabilities of doing that race. Um, perhaps she even won it at some point in her career, but I don't see it necessarily directly on the list, but that could be an indication that she could do those races and win one of those in, in the future years. And sure, it also indicates that the climbs in RVV are looking good for her, the climbs in uh, Stella Bianchi are looking good for her, and that could bridge the gap to having real results like uh, a Mariana Voss, where she's also better on the hilly sprint parkours. And that's interesting. Sure, she... Um, will likely not end up with the career that Mariana Voss has because that is literally a, what a the goat of women's cycling. But <laughs> it's certainly a, a dream that she can hold it in front of herself and perhaps get a few very similar results um, as Mariana Voss in those kind of races. But I um, I think that in this race, you could say that Alonga Borghini gave her a lead out in it. You're right. It's true. But I also think that the win. only way that yeah. Longo Borghini can beat Kopecky here is if she goes so hard on the initial uphill section of that that she drops her by the time the sprint happens and she didn't and as a consequence Kopecky wins and yeah it's just shit that we didn't see anything of it because the camera was behind Leah Thomas uh, looking forward and then turned around and suddenly they were there. <laughs> <laughs> they had the tour of Britain stage one cameraman in action. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, stage, that's the last World Tour race until the Paris Bay, uh, the first ever edition of Paris Bay, which I believe Benji is on a separate day to the men's race, which is always good for us. And when you're thinking about coverage, et cetera, like journalists, which we are, we are not journalists, or media, people in media or whatever have limited bandwidth and just time in the day. So having the race on separate days, we I really, really like because then you just can – do exactly the same process the next day for the men and women's race and focus on the you know better content for it. Uh, then there's the women's tour, which starts just afterwards. We also have obviously European Championships, uh, which is tomorrow, and then World Championships, which should be interesting actually see if the uh, Dutch women want to – if anything's changed after the Olympics road race, um, should be – that'll be an interesting I have one more question. Well. We had uh, Blanca Vaz doing really well here in this uh, in this race, and I'm looking at Roubaix as well. And we know that she's great at cyclocross. Like, True. should SD Works put her in the team? SD Works has a lot of good riders, but these performances and knowing how good she's at CX does that offer up a spot on Roubaix for her? You think? I'd put her in because. She seems to be in like the generational talent category, and you never know yeah. what generational talent can do. 
um, in exactly. And she seems she might have the handling. I mean, it's not like, oh, she's never done Paru Baby before. No one has in the women's peloton. <laughs> so she's at the same disadvantage to everyone else. Now, maybe she hasn't recon the course. I think Drops the Collar have gone and done a, a recon of some of the sections. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd put her in just because she's going to be your one for the future, so why not get her um, – give her a chance now to learn. It's a shame Diget won't be doing it, Benji. Diget, I think she's ended her season, right? Yep, exactly. Really? And, uh, it's also uh, not Very only uh, sad for that aspect, for uh, Roubaix, but also for the World Championships ITT, for the uh, European, no, she won't be in the European Champs ITT. <laughs> That's a <laughs> no, fucking Benji's geography's <laughs> fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Free, the, the Freedom Eagle screeches when they hear you say that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Uh, she would have been good on the World Championships parkour, as well as Grace Brown, who's also had a season-ending injury. She had tried to heal her shoulder injury, didn't heal, and then she's having to have surgery to fix that. So that's a real shame. She's off to FDJ next year, Benji. Grace Brown. Who? Uh, yes, correct. Yeah. She, uh, uh, she actually good, good transfers in that team this season, so yep. looking forward to that. <laughs> we should do a, a women's transfer pots in the coming weeks somewhere. All right, mark it down. But that's our recap of the Welter Challenge and some other women's cycling news. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know, is there someone we're missing for Paris-Roubaix Femme First Edition who you think low-key will um, really enjoy the parkour? Probably Chantal Vanderbilt-Black, but uh, it's not exactly a hot take. But until the European Champs... On, on, on the track team, come on. Oh, my mind is Lucinda Brand, probably. Yeah, true. Lucinda Brand. But yeah, Grace Brown obviously would have won it. Um, but yeah, until the European Championships recap tomorrow, we'll see you then. Ciao.